This is episode 220, featuring an exhaustive overview of this year's New York City Marathon with 17-time finisher and course guide, Mr. Richard White. Welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Coach Jason Fitzgerald, and this episode is your New York City Marathon Overview. I'm speaking with Richard White, who's finished the race 17 times, offers on-course guides, and is a fixture of the New York City running scene. Now, if you want even more resources to help your running, don't miss Strength Running's YouTube channel at youtube.com slash strengthrunning. And I want to thank all of you for helping us reach a big milestone of more than 50,000 subscribers. Helping more runners has always been my goal, and with your help, we're making it a reality. Now, of course, our home base is strengthrunning.com. Since 2010, we've helped tens of thousands of runners all around the world with the award-winning Strength Running blog, our free email courses on topics from strength to mental toughness to injury prevention, and the full catalog of training programs and coaching services to help you achieve your wildest ambitions as a runner. You can see those at strengthrunning.com slash coaching. This episode is sponsored by Inside Tracker. They help you analyze your body's biomarker data to give you a clear picture of what's going on inside you. And then they offer science-backed recommendations to improve any metrics that are outside of your unique optimal zones. For a limited time, you can get 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store at insidetracker.com slash strengthrunning. We're also supported by Athletic Greens, a health and wellness company that makes AG1, a category-leading greens mix that has 75 vitamins and minerals, prebiotics, probiotics, antioxidants, and adaptogens. Go to athleticgreens.com slash Jason to get a free year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs. You can sign up for a one-time shipment or a convenient recurring delivery at athleticgreens.com slash Jason. Our guest today is a fixture of the New York City running scene, a man who's completed the New York City Marathon 17 times and is going for his 18th run this weekend, Mr. Richard White. This weekend's race will be Richard's 60th marathon after more than four decades of racing. He's truly in love with the 26.2-mile distance. You'll notice as well that Richard not just understands this course, but the unique logistics of the New York City Marathon and its history. We're going to talk more about what makes the New York City Marathon so unique, how to mentally grapple with the extraordinary energy of this race and its two million cheering spectators, what you can expect that's new at this year's race, how Richard segments the New York City Marathon course, his tips for the hardest section of it, and what to do after the race when you're wandering around Central Park on marathon legs. Without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Mr. Richard White. Richard, I appreciate you being here. Welcome. Thank you. You're welcome. I'm really glad that we were put in touch because you just have such a rich history with the marathon and specifically the New York City Marathon. And I understand that you have run... uh, about 60 marathons, and, and this is going to be, what, your 18th New York City Marathon? Is that right? That's right. Yeah, that's right. So uh, I get what I deserve. <laughs> I know what I'm in for. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, you certainly uh, know what you're getting into because you not only have run the race, you know, more than a dozen times, but you actually give tours of the race too, right? Yeah, yeah, along the course. And I'm a big fan of uh, knowing what's ahead. Uh, if there's going to be a hill coming up, I want to know that. Now, I don't want to memorize everything about the race necessarily, although you know familiarity will do that to you. But I like to know what I'm in for. And then this goes for any course, especially in a marathon. And a five-mile, maybe it's not so important, but a five-miler. But with a marathon, it's really important because uh, things uh, change over the several hours you're out there as far as your effort. And it's good to know uh, what effort, uh, how you need to budget that effort over the course of several hours. So I like to know where the hills are. I like to know where the downhills are. Uh, I like to know um, where it gets quiet, uh, where it's scenic. I like to know all sorts of things because there's so much. What's what's interesting about one of the things interesting about this race is there's so much 
sort of external stimulation going on during this race. It is not a quiet race. Uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, that's, that's, that's lovely. So as long as you know what to expect, it makes it at least mentally easier to deal with it to some extent. So you can, uh, you can change your approach as you're going along. And that's one of the things I like to do. So I like to learn about the course and I like to uh, uh, know where the, the hard parts are and where the easy parts are and uh, prepare for them. And then when race day shows up, well, it's not like you weren't warned. So uh, there you go. I love it. And we are going to hopefully fully prepare our audience for the New York City course and, and everything it has to offer so that we can really think a little bit more strategically and productively about how we can attempt the New York City Marathon course. Um, now, you mentioned that the New York City Marathon course is not quiet. And I noticed myself, this was the first marathon I ever ran back in 2008. And, and I noticed that, you know, even though it was my first marathon, but in comparison to every other race that I had ever run, and I have run quite a few, it was so loud the entire time. And it's not like Boston where you kind of start out in the suburbs, right? And then you kind of make your way into the city. New York City Marathon is entirely within the city. You go through all five boroughs. And I felt like I was being screamed at for, you know, the better part of three hours. And I kind of, you know, you have to remember that it's going to be like that because if you're not ready for that, it's sort of a mental uh, drag on your your resources, isn't it? Just because if you're yeah. if you're hoping yeah. for that quiet, that calm, that serene, almost meditative approach to the marathon, you're probably not going to get it at New York. Probably not. And I, you know, and just to throw out a couple statistics, the New York Roadrunners estimates there are two million spectators. That's a lot of people. Now, I think this year will be a few, it'll be fewer than that, but 2 million people just spectating. And uh, a couple of years ago, the last time it was run, it was 53,000 other runners. And they're really psyched and they're pumped. And so many people are coming into this race from other countries. There are actually more non-Americans in this race than <laughs> Americans. Uh, so you get running clubs from all over the world, uh, mostly Europe. And uh, they're just pumped and psyched and you get these clubs and they're happy and, and, and it's, you know, it pulls you along. And, and I always find with, with New York, the first half is, of course, guess what? It's easiest because, well, first of all, you're fresh and you get these huge crowds in Brooklyn. The first half is really all in Brooklyn. And so it's just lovely. And then you have this, uh, you do have one area that you may remember is very quiet, which is a 59th Street Bridge, Queensboro Bridge going into Manhattan. It's about mile 14, 15, 16, right in there. And there are no crowds. And to get, it does get that rather quiet. Unfortunately, it's an uphill. So you really are with your thoughts on the uphill. You don't have anyone pulling you along. But then after you, once you get into Manhattan, you're really with people for the rest of the, of the, of the show. So uh, it, it is it sort of, it is a bit crazy with the crowds and the noise and all. And, uh, and I'm one of these people. I live in New York City, so I'm a little bit more used to it. Um, but I have to admit that uh, uh, I get a little cranky about an hour after the after the race is over because I just want to get get home and get into you know take my shower and be quiet for a little while. But that's we'll talk about after the race later, I guess. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that is a very unique differentiating factor with the New York City Marathon is just the overall energy of, of the day. And you know, Richard, one of the things that I noticed after years after running New York City, after I had run the Philadelphia Marathon, I've run the Boston Marathon, I've run a, a smaller marathon, is just the level of logistics needed the morning of, of the race. I was hoping you might be able to walk us through the morning of the marathon and, and sort of the logistics that are required. You know, how do you get out to Staten Island? What is that scene like there before the start of the race? And, and what should runners expect? Okay. Uh, generally, um, some of the, some of the legwork, pre-race legwork and logistics are work are, are taken care of for all the runners because as usual, the runners have to pick a mode of transportation that is, uh, going to be supplied by the New York Roadrunners, uh, the marathon organizer organizers to get to Staten Island. So they've already had to make that decision. Now there's either the ferry or the bus from the New York public library. They both work. I've tried both. Um, and, uh, the ferry is nice cause you have a nice little boat ride uh, before, but, um, 
outside of the sort of n- normal marathon runner nerd stuff that you do the night before, uh, you really have to sit down and figure out the logistics as you get as, as you are saying. So my my general my feeling about before the marathon is the day before the day before the Saturday, sit down and either write out or put it in your phone or however you want to do it, exactly what your start and ending times are for getting out to Staten Island. Because the, the point is to get to your corral in Staten Island from the time you get up in the morning. And so, of course, you know, most of us lay our clothes out and they have all our stuff ready and things like that. So most people are taking the subway to either uh, New York Public Library for a bus or to the Staten Island Ferry. Uh, that is if they're in Manhattan or the Bronx or in, and so that's a, that's a chunk of time right there. So you, what I would go, do is I go to the NTA website and I find out when the trains are running and you can see whether they're running whether 20, 30, 40 minutes and you pick the right train for you to get to where you go to either the ferry or the, over the bus. And you do that and you give yourself a little extra time so that you don't start to stress out because I think stress really takes away from the energy level that you have. You need to save that energy for the marathon. You really do. So I'm. what I do is the day before, I figure out exactly how I'm going to get to each particular point. And then I just make a note to myself. I have it when I wake up at like 3.30 or 4 o'clock in the morning or whatever it is. Uh, I, have, I have it all set. I'm ready. I don't have to think about anything. I just need to get my butt to Staten Island and inside Fort Wadsworth. So you, you figure out the subway. You figure out how, when the what ferry you've already picked, you've probably picked one already, or a New York Public Library bus. The bus will take you right to Staten Island and drop you off right there. That's pretty easy to understand, right at the right at Fort Wadsworth. And the, the, the ferry will actually take you to a bus at the ferry terminal in Staten Island, and then you take a bus from there to to the start line, which is about a mile and a half, I think. And what that bus tends to creep over the years, it tends to take, it could take you 30 to 40 minutes to get there just to go a mile and a half, just because there's such a traffic jam on Staten Island. It works okay. It's fine. I think this year will be a little easier because we have fewer runners and uh, the legit, it's just a little easier. It's not going to be quite so overwhelmed this year, but in, in most years, it's a bit of a trip. So just plan for all these things. Do like you normally do for another marathon or a race, bring you water. Don't over drink. Don't, you know, don't drink a gallon of water before you get on get on the bus because there's usually no bathrooms on the buses and just map it out and and take the guesswork of that morning because that morning you need to just get your mind focused on getting ready to run a marathon now once you get to staten island you have airport style security and my feeling about staten island in the fort wadsworth area is very much like trying to catch an airplane so you get off the bus and you go through security you get wanded what have you uh and then only runners are allowed into that area, of course, and you have to show your number to get in there. And then there are maps telling you what your corral or like your, your flight gate is. And you, my thing is, is uh, one of my little tips is I immediately find a portage on once I get out there, whether I have to go to the bathroom or not, especially one with a short line. So just get it. It's insurance for later if you're out there for another couple of hours. And then you find a map or you find a volunteer who's very helpful. There are tons of volunteers out there and find where your corral is. And once you go in the corral, you usually have to stay in it. But sometimes, which you can, you can find it. And then you go, that's when you go find some coffee or a bagel or whatever food they have you. And if you need to use the bathroom again, go do that. Uh, once you find your corral, plop down, bring something to sit on if you like, and then uh, just wait it out. But, uh, uh I would say just map all that out, figure it out. Uh, it's like it's like catching a flight. You find your gate, and then you can go to the bathroom or whatever you want to do. So um, one of my other, and this is this is not so much logistical, but this year one of the new things, and we'll get to this later, I guess, is is uh, there is no bag check day of. So you can't bring a bag to check uh, to Staten Island this year. Uh, what you wear is what you'll be wearing for the race, or you take it off before you you start the race. So uh, in years past, it's generally kind of chilly. It can be very cold. It can be in the 40s, uh, at least for New York, that's chilly. Uh, and we're not used to that here just yet. Right now, it's 75 degrees here today. So um, you get out there and you stand around for two or three hours. Uh, you better have a few layers on top of your running outfit. Uh, and you can toss them off and, and the race organizers will collect extra clothing and donate it to charity. 
So uh, I've had I've been out there in past years where it was 35 degrees and I had to stand next to a UPS truck for warmth in the sun. That was not a good or <laughs> Portageons are actually really warm places. I have to say I found that out one year. Uh, not I wouldn't hang out in there, but it was it was it was, it was sweet relief to, with with wind gales coming to get into a portage. It's like oh my god, it's finally warm in here. So I would say dress warmly and map out exactly what your logistics are going to be the day you know before because you're going to have all this energy like the day before. You know how we are before marathons. It's like oh you know, and you get in there, just map it out, figure out what you have to do. Just don't have to think about anything except about your pacing and your effort for the actual race. Uh, so dress warmly, uh, get out there. Uh, uh, and also you will be standing and waiting for the race to start for 45 minutes at the base of the Verrazano bridge. Uh, and you have to dress warmly for that too. Uh, you're not moving yet. And once the race gets started, you know how to race, how to run and, and everybody knows how to run in, in particular temperatures, you know, dress like it's 10 or 15 degrees warmer than it normally is. Yeah, Richard, I remember when I did it in 2008, I actually did spend some time hanging out in a porta potty because it was <laughs> so cold on race morning. And I don't know if it was a function of the number of porta johns that they ordered, but there were so many that there were no lines. I found one that hadn't been used at all. And and I tell all all people, if you can find an unused porta potty and there's no lines, you know, spend some extra time in there to stay warm. It's uh, something that you don't want to be bragging about later, but it's very functional. <laughs> it's, it's true. It's who knew? Who knew you warmed up on race day by going to the portage on? So <laughs> especially if there's no line. I mean, who wants to stand in line? And, and uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, but but, you know, normally do all the do the things you normally do before a marathon or a race. You don't drink too much. Don't eat too much. Don't do crazy stuff that you did. You know, do all the things that you did for the long run. And prepare that way, but it is a, it is a little chilly out there. So, and I tend to run I tend to run a little cold. So I would just so much rather be overheated with extra layers on. I can just take I can always take an extra layer off, but you know you can't uh, put on extra layers if you don't have them. So just be prepared for that. And once you get running and you're going across the Verrazano Bridge, it, you're it's just lovely. So you know it's not so it's not not a bad thing at all. There you don't have to worry so much about the, the heat and the cold. Yeah. So if we're thinking about some of the new maybe COVID precautions or the new logistics this year compared with years past, you had mentioned that there's no day of bag drop. So that's a really important thing to keep in mind. You know, you can't bring a bag to Staten Island and expect to get it in Manhattan at the end of the race. They're not doing that anymore. Is there anything else that they're doing differently this year in terms of those kinds of logistics or about different coronavirus precautions that they might have in place? Yeah, there are um, a couple of things uh, they're doing. They usually have a lot of events going on the night before, like pasta party and things like that. And and uh, they do have a, a sort of a fun run the day before they're, that's still going on this year. But there are certain things that, are, that aren't happening they're minimizing uh, contact uh, between people to some extent. So um, that's that's one thing that they're doing. The other thing is, uh, as far as masking goes, uh, to put it simply, uh, everyone needs to wear a mask when they're picking their number up, or they're uh, they're on transportation, or they're in the finish line area. But uh, when you don't have to wear a mask, will be during the race when you're running. So. Uh, Interestingly, they will have masks at the finish line for the finishers. Uh, so there is that. And as far as the bag, I'll, I'll, I'll sort of discuss the bag drop thing. Yes, it's not day of, but they have a situation this year where you can supply, you can pack a bag up to 48 hours before the race and leave it in Central Park or at a drop-off location that I, I don't know exactly where that is, but you can actually uh, put a bag together. It's almost like packing a bag before going on a vacation and sending it off to your vacation destination. So it's there while you're waiting, which isn't a bad idea sometimes. So uh, you can pack a warm coat and maybe a change of clothes or some extra layers or whatever you need for after the race. And they will take that and, and put that uh, it, it in safekeeping for you uh, after you cross the finish line. So they do have that option. But, they, but with that, they also have uh, in the past few years, they've had something, uh, a fleece lined cape that they give you a bright orange cape, which is everybody sees coming. Uh, but uh, that will be provided to everyone this year. 
and uh, and I probably will have some mylar going on at the same time. But that'll keep you warm. Uh, but that's 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 the change. The masks, uh, the distancing to some extent. Uh, it's a smaller field this year. There are about thirty thousand or so runners instead of fifty three, fifty thousand. Uh, so it's going to be a little bit different this year in that sense. Um, but uh, just a few COVID precautions. Also, uh, I believe you do need to be vaccinated in order to go into the Javits Center to pick up your number. Or if you have uh, you don't, haven't been vaccinated, you have to get tested. And uh, there will be a separate area to pick up your number if you prove you've had a test and you've come up negative. So uh, it, it's pretty much a vaccinated uh, crowd this year. So there, there is that it's, it's pretty much there. And that's, that's also carries over to the race itself. You need proof of vaccination. So Richard, let's talk about what happens when the gun goes off. Um, you know, everyone who is listening to this is either interested in the New York city marathon is about to run the New York city marathon, or maybe has already run it. I'd love to hear how you think about the course itself. Do you, do you consider it a difficult course when you compare it to other major marathons around the country? Uh, yes, it's moderately difficult. Um, you know, it depends on how people feel about hills. That's really what it comes down to. And, and as we mentioned sort of earlier, the, the, uh, the crowds of people, sometimes you just want to run and zen out a little bit on a run. And this is not the race for that, of course, but, but as far as hills go, um, yeah, uh, it's, it's, it has lots of inclines and three notable hills. Uh, and thankfully the very first one is in the very first mile, which is Verrazano bridge. It's the steepest hill. It's 162 feet, something along those lines. And so, um, you don't even really notice it because you're so pent up and all, but, but, uh, I would say there, you know, there's a way to approach it. Um, the course is as far as pacing and effort. Uh, but it is, it is to, to answer your question it is hard, uh, to some extent, I wouldn't necessarily go on a PR, go for a PR on this course, although I know people who have done that. Um, uh, I think uh, there are flatter courses for PRs elsewhere. So uh, it's uh, you know there's a there's a I have a particular strategy for the race, uh, and uh, it's basically course related to some extent. Um, my, one of my philosophies of marathons is, and it's not even, I should say observation instead of philosophy, is the first 70% of the marathon is, is physical effort. The next 20% is physical and mental effort. And the final 10% is physical, mental, and emotional effort. Uh, so all three of those come into play, whether you like it or not. <laughs> and so, you know, that last 30% is, is very mental and so that's what I really key in on in this course, at least, because that's where I make it into trouble. Uh, that's when the fatigue sets in, and for many of us. And those, uh, you start hitting hills there, they mean a lot more than they did back at mile one when you had that hill going up the Verrazano where you're just sort of raring to go and you're just so happy with this group, thousands of runners running up this hill. And you, you've got all the energy in the world. But it's very different 20 miles later, as you know. <laughs> yeah, sure is. I don't think I'll ever forget mile 23 back in yeah. 2008. <laughs> I'll get into that in a minute. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about the very beginning of the race because, you know, like you mentioned, the biggest hill of the race is almost right from the beginning where you're going up the Verrazano bridge. You know, it, it, the first mile can be kind of slow. The second mile can actually be a little quick. You're bombing down the backside of that, of that bridge. How do you think about the start? Do you try to advise people to, you know, really tone it down? Or do you think it's an opportunity where you can, you know, take advantage of the energy of the whole marathon crew just starting the race? I would say uh, yes to toning it down. Um, the first mile's up, second mile's down. It's pretty easy to understand. And it tends, you tend to take off a little too fast because it's the company you keep. And most people in your uh, uh, in your corral or should be about your pace, and uh, everybody's ready to go. And you take off, and you might. I don't think it really gets you into trouble, but why not save that energy for later when you really need it? Um, I would say cool it about say ten to fifteen seconds slower uh, per mile your marathon pace uh, at the, at a minimum, and then when you come. 
over the hill and you're going back down, you're going to pick it up anyway. It's just gravity is going to help you. It's going to be easy. You're going to be really happy. You're going to be finally we're into Brooklyn almost. So uh, I would say try to cool it there too, just a little bit. Uh, my second mile is usually like really flying. And I, I remember looking at my watch one year going, uh, that's only about a minute faster than my average marathon pace. I really need to stop this right. You know, so you got to cool it a little bit. That first two miles, just take it easy. And I, it, it, it's easy to say, and we get in there and we will run it too fast or what have you. And it happens. And the same thing happens in Boston, as you know, the first miles downhill and everybody runs that like their pants are on fire and you got to cool it. Uh, and you, you feel great after the first mile, but you know, think about 20 miles from now, save a little bit of that energy, save some of the gas in the tank and for later. So that's what I do. So my thing is first couple of miles, take it easy, cool it, let everybody pass you if they have to, or you pass other people, whatever, stay in the middle, stay out of the way, head down, just keep your eyes on the prize get into Brooklyn and then look at your watch, see what your pace is. Cause that last mile was faster than you probably should have run. Cause you're, you just hit the mile two marker. And then, uh, Brooklyn is uh fourth Avenue and takes you pretty much all the way to the half marathon point. That's when you settle into your marathon pace that you should be doing for, for most of the time. You're, you're whatever that is. It's usually sort of faster than your easy uh, pace, of course, but, but, Settle into that marathon pace and, you know, make the water stops you, may, you need to make. There'll be thousands of people, crowds everywhere, sensory overload. Just get in there and try to, to learn. Just get that, that pace back. To, okay. So then you get in there and you, you finish, you get to the half marathon point and then it starts to get a little harder because you get the bridges. And like I said, the 59th street bridge. So I try to maintain pace. Uh, uh, certainly as long as I can, uh, uh, on the hills, the uphills, the very next hill is going to be the Queensboro bridge, 59th street bridge, as I mentioned. And that, uh, that goes on for about, you know, eight tenths of a mile and it gets very quiet and it gets hard. And so, uh, I've over the years with my hill training, I tried to learn that, um, uh, my effort is greater because I'm going up a hill. So if I can drop my effort or my pace, maybe about uh, five, eight percent, somewhere in there, seven percent, uh, based on my average marathon pace, then that's what I do going up a hill. I'm not charging up a hill because I need to keep gas in the tank. And that's true for another hill that comes later, about mile 23, as you mentioned. So I try to keep pace. Uh, and then once I get to about 19 and 20, which is up in, uh, uh, in the Bronx, and I'm coming back down into, into uh, Manhattan, uh, that's when the negotiations start as to whether I pick it up or I, uh, I don't feel good enough to, to do that. And I slow it down a little bit. And I, I figure I, that's when I, I, from there on, that's when I start mentally breaking it up into sections so that I know I, I complete a task, uh, each section, like maybe a mile or two. And, uh, it's a little nerdy. It's a little runner nerdy, I have to admit, but I've run the race enough that I know exactly what's coming up. So I know, I know how to prepare for that and, and budget my effort so that I'm ready for that particular challenge coming up. Well, Richard, I was going to ask how you segment the race, how you kind of break it down into different sections. And it sounds like, you know, the, the first couple miles, because of the both the uphill and the downhills of that first bridge, you, you really just keep it pretty relaxed. You don't even almost worry about pace too much. It's more about effort. And then once you get into Brooklyn, maybe around mile two or three, it's at that point that you become much more pace oriented. Am I getting that right? Yes, exactly. Um, and one pace, one, one strategy, there are many different race strategies, as you know, one race strategy that has worked for me in the past, uh, is run the first, and this runs, this goes for many marathons. This worked for me in Boston one time, uh, run the first 10 miles, about 15 to 20 seconds lower than your predicted marathon pace or the one you've trained for, and then run the next 10 miles at 15 to 20 seconds faster. And then the last, and then the next six miles, hang on to that pace as best you can, because it's a wild card, whatever happens after that. You know, so many things, as we know, can happen on race day that you can't predict. It could be 90 degrees. It could be 12 degrees. It could be the humidity could be high. There could be, uh, 
all sorts of things that, that happened that, that you didn't really plan for like that. Like I say, that particular hill coming up, you just maybe you didn't do enough hill work when you're training. Uh, maybe your long runs didn't, you know, there are all sorts of things that, that could go wrong. Uh, and a lot of things that can go right race day. So you need to, you need to budget for that a little bit, but, but I usually, uh, in this particular situation, I take it easy in the first two miles, adjust to average uh, marathon uh, pace, whatever I fig- figured out that to be over uh, my training. And everyone, and I say this to anyone that I ever talk to, you need to know your paces for whatever races you're in. You know, your easy pace, your marathon pace, your interval pace, your 5K pace, they're all different paces. And your marathon pace is, of course, slower than 5K pace. So act like it. You know, you get in there and you know what that pace is. And if you see that your average, you know, your marathon pace is a nine minute mile and you're looking at your watch after six miles and your average pace is, you know, eight minute miles, uh, maybe you should slow down. Maybe you should because you may pay for that later. Uh, we've all had bad days and we've all had good days and you want this to be a good day. So that's pretty much it. So uh, in the last, the, as I was saying, the last 30% of the race to me is very mental. I'm trying to, to get through, um, uh, uh, I'm, the fatigue has set in and my legs are starting to complain and my brain is saying no. And it's managing my, 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 uh, my fatigue. And I want to get through that. So part of the mental uh, effort is knowing what's coming up and breaking it up into sections so that I know like, okay, I've got 15 blocks to go until I get to the park, for example. Uh, 15 blocks. What, that's nothing. That's three quarters of a mile in New York City, north-south blocks. So I can I do that every day. Come on, 15 blocks. You got this. So I tell myself that and I do the 15 and then I go to the next section. Okay, you got a hill coming up. You're going to get this done. And that's how I, that's how I approach that. So uh, it doesn't always work beautifully uh if it's a bad day and we've had them um it can be tough but you you talk yourself through it and you negotiate yourself uh, through this and you do the best that you can and maintain that pace as best you can because the you know the more you the more you run the sooner you're going to finish right so just do it I want to come back to sort of like the the mindset and the psychological side of things, because you've touched on some really interesting aspects of that, Richard. But just a practical question on the hills, especially, you know, the Verrazano Bridge right at the beginning, you have the Queensboro Bridge around mile 15 or 16. I remember that one. I remember <laughs> flying off the back of that one a little bit too quick. That mile was a little rich for me. But do you think it's a good idea, specifically on the New York City Marathon course, to try to make up some time on those downhills? Or do you think that's maybe playing with fire and that might come back and, and bite some runners? Um, it's not a bad idea. I would do that later in the race than earlier. Um, I wouldn't do that in mile two. I think that's, a, I mean, you may have, you know, we're all going to run that second mile faster because it's a downhill and we're ready. We're just so we've been staying, we've been out on Staten Island for like three hours at that point. We're just, we just want to get this done and that happens. But later on, I think if you have a controlled faster downhill, there are actually two of them in Central Park in the last three miles. Uh, one is, uh, folks who are local know there's one that's called Cat Hill. And it's about a quarter of a mile, and you get to go down Cat Hill. And those of us who know it are thanking our lucky stars that it's going the right direction on race day because it's about mile 24 and a half. And there's another one before you get to Grand Army Plaza, which is just past the 25-mile mark. It's a little bit of a downhill, and you're just thanking you know, everybody that it's, it's there. So I would say at that point, it's okay to pick it up a little bit. But once again, you know, if you pick it up, say five, 10% faster, if you went say from a, uh, an eight and a half minute mile to an eight fifteen or eight ten, Hey, go for it. But, but I just wouldn't, you know, as all Hills, you don't fly down the hill. You got to have it controlled. You got to, you don't want to blow your quads out and you don't want to have a that's something you don't want to have happen in the last any time, actually, but especially at the end of a marathon. So just be careful, make a control, pick it up a little bit. You can make up a little time, but uh, not a huge amount of time on a downhill. You know, it's not like you're shaving 30 seconds off of your, your marathon minute per mile or anything like that. 
But it certainly feels good to have gravity take over for a minute. So let it happen. But I wouldn't say that's actually, for me, and in this situation, in this race, a, um, a strategy to rely on just because you got a couple of downhills coming on. You need to maintain pace and you need to feel good. That's my big thing about finishing these races. It's in uh, feeling good is relative, as you may know. Uh, you've got to feel as good as you can. <laughs> as good as you can at mile 23 of a marathon, of course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I've always found too, with those downhills, you can make up a little bit of time, but like you said, it's all about feeling good. If you can make up some time while still feeling good and you're not pounding your legs, because as soon as you start, you know, trying to run so fast that all of a sudden you feel a little bit out of control, your cadence is going so quick that you're really just slamming your feet down on the ground that's when you know you're starting to incur all kinds of muscle damage and that's going to come back and, and haunt you. Right. And plus, you know, our pace suffers in the last few miles. You know, we start to, you see, you see, you see people in marathons, they start to shuffle towards the end. They're getting tired. Well, no kidding. That, that's happened. But your pace starts to suffer. And when your pace starts to suffer, then you start to, you know, you know, certain muscles you haven't used so far today are called into, in, into action. And that's when you may get hurt. It could happen. And so um, that's one of my, it's, it's funny, it's just touch on one of my little tips for people uh, near the end of any race is when you get towards the end of the race and you start feeling tired and you're, uh, you're, you, you, you notice that your, your form and your gait has changed a little, pick your feet up in the back a little bit. Uh, and, and snap off the ground as best you can. It's easy to say, I know at mile 24, it's like, oh yeah, do this. Well, you know, but at the same time, if you, if you make that effort, you actually pick up your pace a little bit and you, it actually gets you through that better than you think it would. It's better than saying, oh, we'll pick it up. Well, anybody can, any spectator can say, pick it up at mile 25. And, you you know, I've, I've had some choice words for people who gave that advice. But uh, <laughs> you, you don't want to hear that at mile 25. But if you pick your feet up and you try to get your form back, and uh, even if it means stopping for three seconds and shaking out your arms, and I say for three seconds or something, you don't want to lose a lot of time. But if you get your form back and try and, and put a smile on your face and try to to get that sort of, for want of a better word, the magic back of mile one and two on the Verrazano Bridge, because you, your race will end better if you uh, if you put that little extra effort, that mental effort into that. Not just the I, you know, I have to tell myself I'm going to finish this, which is certainly what you're telling yourself. But you need to get that form and that 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 feeling back and get a smile on your face because cameras are coming up anyway and, uh, and do the best act like you just, you know, you just got out of the shower and you feel great. And, <laughs> and even if it's not true, even if it's not true. Well, I think you just described a very interesting phenomenon that happens at the end of marathons where your body starts slowing down, but your mind starts going faster and you start racing through anxieties and woe is me and things are going my way at the end of a marathon, where if you have a little bit more mental bandwidth or psychological skills to use at your disposal in the last, say, 10K of a marathon, I always felt like it gives you just some extra space, just some extra calm, focused space for you to think to yourself, okay, I only have 15 blocks until I turn into Central Park. All right, I'm running downhill, but I'm starting to feel a little out of control. I'm going to steer the ship and I'm really going to control my body and not slam my feet down. And I've always thought that that mental uh, presence is really important at the end of a marathon, but it's also very rare because it's just so difficult to be with it and to think clearly. And that's such a great example of mental toughness. And I'd love to ask you a little bit about the psychological demands of the New York City Marathon, because we've been talking about the crowds. You know, I remember when I ran the 2014 Boston Marathon, it was the year after uh, the bombs at the finish line, and they had double the number of spectators on the course that year, just as a show of solidarity. But it was still only about a million people. Now you compare that with New York City, normally they have 2 million people. So it's almost like a quadrupling of the Boston Marathon spectators in a normal year, which I think is just incredible. And so I'd love to hear some of your tips for, you know, what kind of mindset do you think is most productive for New York City? Uh, do you think about how you think 
at different points during the race so that you can kind of conserve some of that bandwidth for the end. How do you grapple with all this? Um, I start to, well, one thing it's hard to do. You try to shut out a lot of the other runners and a lot of the, and the spectators a little bit. You can do that. And when, when it starts to get tough, and I've kind of talked on this, uh, I've kind of mentioned this before, but really the first half of the marathon is, you know, it's smiles and high fives and everything. It's great. Uh, so you get across, you know, and then it gets quiet going into into uh, uh, Manhattan. And mile 16 is before you get off the, uh, the 59th Street Bridge. And then you're on First Avenue where just all hell breaks loose. Thousands of people are cheering. It's actually a very emotional moment for people, for first timers, because they get across the bridge and all of a sudden there are thousands of people behind barricades cheering you on. And you're like, is that for me? And it's, it's, it's a really, it's a very lovely moment. I, I, I've, the first time that happened to me, I was just like all very emotional about it. Uh, that, that went away after a while, but so, so really what I do is at that point, that's when I start to subdivide the, uh, the, the last say 10 miles of the race. And what I do is I look at the map and I recommend anyone in any marathon, look at your map and learn uh, what is up ahead, what you have to do. Also, in the days or weeks, preferably weeks before a marathon, run part of the course and learn if you live locally, especially. If you don't live there, you can't do it. But even if it's even if you arrive in town a few days ahead, run just a mile or two of the course so that you have an idea of what to expect. So run part of the course uh, and and but but look at the map. So what I do is I looked at the map and I went through the last ten miles from mile sixteen point two thereabouts uh, to the end, and I broke it up for myself. I broke it up into six six sections. And the first section is First Avenue from Fifty Ninth Street to the Willis Avenue Bridge uh, into the Bronx. That's about three and a half miles, and um, that's when things start to get a little tired. For, I get a little tired. It's between 16 and about 19 and a half. And uh, I, that happens to me in most marathons. I, that's when I start to feel it. And uh, I wish it was later at mile 25 and a half, but I can't change. You know, that's just my experience. So that's my first section. I just got to get that three and a half miles. And I tell myself three and a half miles, who's the three and a half miles. You did that last week and you didn't even notice you did three and a half, you know, or, or two days ago, what have you. So I get the three and a half miles there. The Bronx is a mile and a half. I get through the Bronx. I do a little sightseeing. Uh, I look at the architecture. I get my mind off of it. I stop and get a little bit of water for like five seconds or 10, get back into Manhattan. And then once you're in Manhattan, you're going down fifth, fifth Avenue, as you know, all the way to central park. And I even break that into sections. Uh, that's about two and a half miles to, to Central Park or the, the uh, northeast corner of it. The hardest part and the mentally the most challenging mental part of that is the fifth. I call it the Fifth Avenue Hill. Uh, and, and just to prove my point, because I, I knew I was going to talk to you. I just ran it about an hour and a half ago. I said, well, I better practice what I preach. So I ran it. It's one mile. It goes from 110th Street to 90th Street on Fifth Avenue. 20 blocks equals one mile in New York City. So it's 90 feet uphill. Okay, so I know it's coming. And I what I do, and this is one of my marathon um, tips, is always expect the worst coming up. Because when either it's going to be bad and you're prepared for it and it's horrible, or it's not as bad as everybody told you. Uh, I've been hearing about Heartbreak Hill for so many years before I ran it. By the time I ran it, I'm like, what is this hill? I'm not kidding. I was, I, it was a great day in Boston. That's a different story. So expect the worst. What could happen? You either do really well or you're like, yeah, they told me it's bad, but at least I'm mentally prepared. So that hill, uh, 110th to 90th Street, 90 feet uphill. It's very gradual. And you know it because you ran it. And it's, it's tough because it's about mile 23, between 22 and a half and 23 and a half. It's very gradual and people start to walk. It starts to look like a zombie movie. And my strategy there, which since I have broken it up in my head, I do not stop on that hill. Do not stop on that hill. And what I do is I adjust my pace, maybe about five, seven percent. I put my head down. I adjust my pace downward a little bit. It's okay. It's going to be flat up ahead. This will, this will pass. I get through that. There's a water station. People love to stop at that water station. If you need water, stop. But get the hell out of there as soon as you can. Don't walk up that hill. So my deal, I said, do not walk. 
get up the hill, let everybody else hang out. The crowds start to close in. There are museums. There's a Mount Sinai Hospital there, which is sort of welcoming you, like, don't you want to go in? But it's, it's great. It's, 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 you just you get up that hill, and I'm going to get to the top of that hill, and I'm going to turn into Central Park. And once I turn into Central Park, I'm home. Uh, for me, it's great because I run Central Park all the time and I know the course very well. But you have about two and a half miles left from there. You are 90% done with that race when you reach the top of that hill. And if you've done 90% of that race mentally, you know you will finish this race. If you have to walk backwards or crawl, you will be done today. Now, you could be nailing it with a PR, happy day, good for you. But for mere mortals who are having a bad day and are just making it up that, that hill, you need to get up that hill. Don't stop. And if you do need to stop sometime, save it for, for uh, uh, mile 24, 25 water station and just count down the seconds. Five, four, three, two, one, take off. Keep walking forward with that water. Get the hell out of there. Let's get the race done. So that's, that's my sort of strategy. I break it up in the last 10 miles. And then that the, the, the crucial mile is at up Fifth Avenue. And it ain't pretty. But uh, it's always it's always there, and I and, and every year I, I see people just sort of slowing down. It's okay to slow down, but not too much. Get up that hill. Make negotiate negotiate. Get you, get your brain out of that. I want to stop. You don't want to stop. You want to stop when you cross the finish line. Get this done. So that's what I start to tell myself. And I also I like as you, as you can imagine, part of my strategy is I negotiate my, with myself. I, one year I did New York, my quads seized up. They were like rocks. I couldn't go any. So I said, okay, you're going to make it in the last five miles. You're going to make it to the next water station. And you're going to give yourself 10 seconds, 15 seconds. You're going to drink your water. You, you know, pound out those quads, get them back into order. And then you're going to do another mile. You're going to leapfrog from station to station. That's how I finished the race. I wasn't happy about it. It wasn't a PR, but I finished the race and I got it done. So you just, you negotiate, you get, you break it up into sections. It's so mental. It's amazing. And by the time you get to the last mile or mile 25, 26, you're running on, you should be running on fumes. If you're not, you didn't, you know, you gotta, you, you gotta do it. You gotta get it done. And if you, if you need to call into, you know, bring any emotional response you want to finish this in, you do it. When you see that finish line and you, you know how you turn on left to go into Boylston and Boston and you see that finish line and it looks like it's 10 miles away, but it's really only like, you know, three quarters of a mile away, you know, you've done it. And it just, that, that feeling comes over you and you have the same thing once you go through Columbus circle into, into the park, to tavern on the green. And it's like, oh my God, you know, I'm, I'm like, I'm doing this. This is so great. So you got to hold on to all that stuff in the last you know, because the last mile is the last mile. You're, you're there. Yeah, that's a really special feeling. There's very few like it in the world, that feeling when you're so close to the end of a marathon and, and you know it's going to happen for you. And I, I love your advice for that big hill on Fifth Ave around mile 23. And, and I wish everyone could have seen you because, you know, we're speaking via uh, video conference right now and you're shaking your finger, you know, like a yeah. good New Yorker at me to not walk in that mile. And you know what? I still have very visceral memories of that mile because I almost walked. And it, I, maybe I still remember it because if I had walked at that moment, I probably wouldn't have started running again when I first ran this marathon. And it would have been the first time in my life I had ever started to walk in a race. And so it was just this very emotional moment for me. Like, wow, I here I am thinking of myself as a somewhat competitive runner and I'm being reduced to a walk on a fairly mild hill. And so your advice to kind of know what's coming, I think is really valuable here because that hill is a mile long. It comes at one of the worst times in the race when your fatigue is peaking and it can really throw you off mentally if you're not ready for that. Cause I know it did for me and it was, you know, it kind of screwed with my head a little bit, but I'm so glad that I didn't walk in that mile. And I had the same mentality that, that you just described. Let's just get to the top. Let's just not walk. And then for, if you can do that, you're going to be able to finish. Yeah. And, and the, the good thing about that hill is it's, it's straight. It's a straight road. It starts at 110th to 90th. So what I do is I look 
I don't obsess about the cross streets, but I know if I look at, a, I know it starts about 110th Street. And if I look, I look up to my left at the, to see the, the street signs about every three minutes or so, two, three minutes. And if I see I got, went from 110th to say, you know, 102nd, I'm going, oh, I only got 12 blocks to go until this freaking hell's done. And so it, it, it's a nice thing. It just, you just plot your progress. You get up, you know, and you tell yourself, this is only a mile. And it's just, yeah, but it's a, yeah, it's an only a mile, but it is mile 22 and you just ran 20 some miles and it's just, yeah, it sucks. We got it. But at the same time, this, this, this will happen. And, uh, and it's almost, and, and what I'm sort of implying too here is that part of what I do during marathons is I sort of try to divorce myself from an emotional and, and, uh, uh, response to different things, or at least, uh, negative thoughts in my head, or it's like I try to manage my my physical uh, uh, approach to it. It's like okay, I can see what's ahead. Let's get there. We can. How are the legs doing? Oh, they're they're okay. Check. Everybody's okay. Okay, great. We're going to get up this hill. You just sort of you almost divorce yourself. You're sort of like an out of body experience. And this may not be too hard at the end of a marathon, as you know, because we get a little loopy. We get a little crazy too. But uh, you know, <laughs> try doing math at mile twenty four. <laughs> you know, but at the same time, you start you start to you you're pulling all the the um, all the tools you have in your in your arsenal to f- help you finish. It's not just oh, I I have good you know uh, you know I have a good stride. You know, it's 185 uh, steps per minute. I'm right on there. It's like that's not what you're thinking about at this point. You start. I get kind of whiny actually, and I start to whine with whine about it. And I don't want to do that anymore. So I, I sort of divorce myself and I'm not saying I'm a machine, but it's, it's a good idea to have, you know, have a word or something and it get meditative or whatever you can use to get you through a, a, a challenge in the last few miles. And even of course the finish line, but whatever you can use in your arsenal to make it happen is great. You know, if you need to, you know, I always, I always used to say, you know, if you're going up, I call it effing hill, actually, uh, this hill. Sometimes people ask, uh, let's get ready for effing hill. And uh, I'm like, if you if there's any deity that you particularly like somewhere, it's time to call them. Collect call. <laughs> Whatever it takes to get up that thing short of drugs, uh, you do it. And that was what works for me. What works for me is to mentally manage my my feelings and my approach to the effort, and that's what works for me. And it breaks, and, and that that means breaking it up into sections, and it means talking myself through those sections and saying, "You can do this because you've done it before," and get over yourself. So, yeah, I love that. It's spoken like someone who's run maybe five dozen marathons or so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Well. That's that. That's uh, that's that's different mental issues there. But as we all know, but uh, um, yeah. So so I I think that it's good to to take New York City and and it, it's hard to PR. It's hard to do all these things. It, it, it's 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 a challenging course. But uh, learn the course and uh, and prepare for you know always prepare for the worst. It's like Boston. You get ready. Everybody gets ready for Heartbreak Hill. And then you find there out there's an underpass near the end of the race. You're like, oh, great. I got this underpass. I got a hill. <laughs> you know <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. It's about mile 25 or so. It's a little tiny underpass. So you got to be ready for these things. So come out and race part of it, you know, or run part of it, I should say, before the, before the marathon or any marathon. Yeah, that's really good advice. Um, <laughs> again, know what's coming up ahead of you so that you can prepare. Now, Richard, one of the things that I struggled with with the New York City Marathon was, was after the race because you finish in Central Park and I felt like I wandered around for like an hour, slowly shuffling around. My legs were just shutting down. <laughs> I was starting to get star. I was just starving for food and I couldn't find my family. It was such a long walk out of the park from where there are only runners allowed to where spectators are kind of waiting for their friends and family to come out of that area. What's the secret to getting out of there alive? I mean, can we, is there a shortcut out of there that you know about that most non-New Yorkers don't? Um, technically, uh, the short answer is no, there's no shortcut because what the New York Roadrunners wants you to do is to walk for about 15 blocks uh, after you cross the finish line north along Central Park West or, or along the drive. 
uh, and it's all, it's chain link fence. You really can't get out of there and your family can't get in there either or friends. So that is typically what, what happens. And it does seem sort of like the Bataan death march and just goes on and on and on. And you just want to get the hell out of there. And then they bop you out about, you know, in the eighties, uh, probably, like I said, 15 blocks North, uh, on the left. And then they make you walk even further because the streets are closed off and the family meetup areas for, you know, it, it, so anyway, for this year, I will say, I understand that they're uh, making the runners leave somewhere around in the seventies, a little closer. So it won't be quite as long. And I think this is because of, you know, pandemic reasons. They don't want everybody uh, hanging out too long in Central Park to some extent. So this year will be a, a quicker exit from the park, I understand, which is fine. And you will be finding your bag, however that works, that you checked a couple of days before. And they'll have a cake for you in case you use it, whether it's cold or not. My thing is normally after this race, give two things. First, give yourself plenty of time to get anywhere. Because you're not going to be moving fast. You don't move fast after a marathon. You just, you know, it's it's it is sort of the Walking Dead. But I, I usually come back from it pretty quickly. Within a half hour, I'm back to my normal walking pace. I'm all right. I'm in a little bit of New York City in me. It's like get out of my way too. But we won't go into that. So <laughs> um, the key is give yourself plenty of time to get wherever you need to get, and wherever you need to get, pick it in advance and make it as far away from the course as you can. Um, so my thing is you find a spot that is, I don't know if it's a coffee shop or what have you, that's in, uh, usually on the upper West side somewhere about two or three streets over, uh, cause it'll be very crowded that day with families and friends looking for their loved ones and, uh, people there, it's very much in a hurry and it's, it's, it's a bit, it's a bit insane. So my thing is, is have an exact exit route that you look at the map that they give you for the, for the, the post race. Have an exit route out of there. And if for some reason that exit route is blocked, which happens sometimes because the roads get, roads get shut off by the cops, um, have, a, have a plan B. Uh, one time I got to Columbus Circle years ago, which is a major area. It runs through there, you know, mile 25 or right towards the end of the marathon. And I couldn't cross Columbus Circle. I had to go into the subway under the ground to cross Columbus Circle. I couldn't even get around. And also, it's like, as you know, when you finish a marathon and you look over there and you see like a football field away that looks like a mile. So you just you're tired and you're just loping along. Have a place to meet friends or family or not. Have them meet you at home. That way the pressure is off you having to meet them and figure out ways to get out. One thing I will say, I live on the east side um, and the, the, the park ends on the on the west side. I've discovered over the years that the tra- there are... Uh, traffic transverses that run across um, uh, underneath the marathon course, uh, right about 85th Street and 72nd Street. And so that's an easy way to get to the east side without having to, because you can't cross the marathon course because you just you just came down the east side. Uh, I found that out the hard way one year. I got to the, I was like, oh, I can't cross here because there are runners and they don't, it's, there's no, so you can take these transverses, but give yourself plenty of time and have an have a exit strategy. It's really important because, as you know, we spent so much time thinking about the logistics getting to the race and running the race because we've been training months about it. And the night before, and Bubbo, you just think, oh, I'll cross the finish line. They'll give me the medal and happy day. And you don't feel so great sometimes. you you got to come back from that. Uh, so the thing to do is get figure out exactly what you have to do and make it far away from the finish line so it's not crowded and meet your friends and family there or back home, best of all. Yeah, I I struggled with this a little bit too when I ran the race because I did not plan this part of the race and it took me a very long time to meet up with my family. I didn't have food when I wanted to have food. And if you don't feed a marathoner after the race when they want to eat, you're going to have a very cranky person. (laughs) So that was me. (laughs) Yeah. And they give you a bottle. Usually you get a bottle of Poland Springs water and a Gatorade. And that's plenty of liquid for the time being, but you need to keep drinking water as the day progresses or you, you, you maintain the dehydration. So, uh, yeah, you got to get somewhere where you can have something. Yeah. It, it just seems like this, this particular marathon, because it's in, you know, one of the largest cities in the world, you really need more planning, both the morning of the race and also after the race. And I feel like that was a big theme of this conversation was, know what is going to happen so that you can plan around it. There won't be any surprises. 
and your day will hopefully go without any of these hiccups and you can get dropped off at the right time. You can meet your family at the right time. And of course, you can manage your energy appropriately during the race itself. Uh, Richard, have we missed anything? Is there anything you'd like to leave our audience with that will help them prepare for the New York City Marathon that's coming up? Uh, I would say the only other thing, and this isn't really going to help you finish the marathon necessarily or run it any better, but I'm sort of a a fan of, uh, I'm an armchair historian of of New York City to some extent. And uh, years ago, I went through the course and figured out sort of historic events along the course. And I'm not saying everybody needs to do that, Lord knows. But I think it's interesting to learn about the neighborhoods you're running through. I mean, it runs through all five boroughs. It runs through sections of Brooklyn that you probably may never have been in before. Um, and you can you can figure out, uh, you can go online and, and look up different neighborhoods and see what happened. And, and there are different landmarks, like a, there's a church in on Manhattan Avenue in, in, um, in Brooklyn called uh, St. Anthony's of Padua. It's on the right-hand side. It's mile 12.4. It's at the top of an incline sort of a hill and every year i turn the corner and there's saint anthony's it's a huge spire and i kind of learned about it because every year i was running over just get to that you know get up there to that thing and then you'd be able to take a right and you're almost halfway done and so i learned about it and i learned about uh i learned about uh there's a section in brooklyn about mile six about i guess it's about mile four you know the first battle of the revolution was fought in uh, in brooklyn uh, it's called the Battle of Long Island or the Battle of Brooklyn, however you want to look at it. And it's near in a park called Prospect Park. And so I discovered that there was a, a cemetery of revolutionary uh, of colonial soldiers that were buried underneath where we ran through on Fourth Avenue. And I thought that was very interesting. And I, the, the things I, I, I like history because just because I like history, number one, but also when you learn about where you're running, it sort of takes your mind off of. Well, you know, here's another marathon. I wonder when the next water station is. Well, it's probably a mile away. That's the answer. But it, but if you if you want, see what you're looking, New York is so rich with with history. If if you see like these amazing buildings up ahead, old, new, or whatever in between. This bridge. How old is a 59th Street bridge, by the way, that we're running on? Or the did you know the Willis Avenue bridge actually swivels in the middle so it'll let cars th- uh, uh, boats through? And and so you learn about these things. I think it's very interesting. Um, you know, and at the top of that hill at Fifth Avenue, you turn into the park. It used to be called Old Harlem Road. And that's uh, that was used by Washington's troops to leave uh, uh, Manhattan in 1776 and all these things. And I like to learn that stuff because I like to learn about where I am. And it doesn't help me run any faster, but it keeps it keeps me interested and keeps my mind on other things. It's like, oh, well, you know, I don't have problems. This is. I'll get through this and think about all this history that's going on around me. It's so cool in New York City and in many other places, in Boston, wherever. But but here, there's so much going on. I think it's great to, to get out and, and learn a little about, you know, where are you and, and why are you there? And what's so cool about this this neighborhood? And you run, it's just a string of neighborhoods. It's amazing. I love it. If you want to go down the rabbit hole of marathoning and really learn about the course and you know, the backstory of the course you can, and especially with a, you know, a city like New York has such a rich culture and a rich history to it. You know, a lot of these big marathons, you know, I'm thinking about Boston in particular too, just have so much history behind them that that, that is a really interesting aspect of, of the marathon itself. Um, Richard, this has been really fun for me. It was sort of going like going down memory lane for me, thinking back to my first marathon, my only time running New York City, but it was such a special experience. Uh, Good luck with your upcoming New York City marathon. I understand if your hip stops being a little cranky, you're going to be running. Yeah, let's hope it all works out. You know, and you know, if if you're having, if you got an injury or not feeling something's not working out, you, you go to plan B. Maybe there's some other way I can get through the course. And you know, anyway, we'll see how it works. And let's just hope for good weather. It's all we can, you know, hope for the best, expect the worst, hope for the best, and we'll be ready. Excellent. Well, thank you, Richard. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. And that's my conversation all about the New York City Marathon with Richard White. A special thank you to Natalie Abajero for putting us in touch and a big, excited virtual high five to all of you who are running New York this weekend. Have fun, run smart, and compete hard out there. A big thank you to Inside Tracker for sponsoring this episode. They want to help you do what you love for life. They want you to be a successful, healthy runner for decades. 
Inside Tracker is the industry's leading personalized blood testing company that helps you analyze your body's data and get a firm idea of how well you're responding to training. Understanding your body's biomarkers, from stress hormones like cortisol to testosterone to vitamin D, can help you determine if any of your critical biomarkers aren't where they need to be. But the best part is that after they give you personalized optimal ranges for each of these biomarkers, they give you a variety of ways to improve these markers through both diet, lifestyle, or exercise changes. I've personally gotten three ultimate tests from them, and the process is simple, it's easy, and it's very eye-opening. For a limited time now, you can get 25% off any test at insidetracker.com slash strengthrunning. This represents a big chunk of savings, so stack the odds in your favor and give yourself every advantage with a personalized blood test. Go to insidetracker.com slash strengthrunning to save 25% today. We're also supported by Athletic Greens, the health and wellness company that makes comprehensive daily nutrition super simple. I personally struggle with eating all the healthy food I know I should be eating, and I'm also a man of convenience, so I'm finding their product, AG1, very helpful when I'm training. One scoop per day gives me 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, including a greens superfood blend, probiotics, prebiotics, adaptogens, and more. AG1 helps me fill in any nutrition gaps in my diet because I know I don't eat perfectly, and it gives me a nice boost of energy and focus throughout the day. And with all three of my kids now back in school, I know that I've got to support my immune system or else... I'm definitely getting sick from all their germs, and then I can't run. But what I love about AG1 is that it changes. Over the last decade, they've made 53 improvements to the formula based on the latest research, and that helps make those nutrients more absorbable and more rigorous with third-party testing. Go to athleticgreens.com slash Jason to see the great offer they've put together for podcast listeners. You can get a year's worth of free vitamin D and five free travel packs of AG1 with your first purchase. You can sign up for a single shipment or you can get a monthly drop if you want to make AG1 a part of your regular healthy lifestyle. Go to athleticgreens.com slash Jason to sign up today. All right, that's our show today, friends. Thank you for being here. And if there's anything I can ever do for you, don't hesitate to reach out. 